Hi there, and welcome to the fourth installment of the Ember Island Critics Podcast. Thank you so much for clicking. I hope you'll enjoy the next two hours you spend with me and my friends. In today's episode, we are discussing everything there is to love about the intricate world of Avatar. A quick disclaimer before we start, opinions ahead, as well as headcanons and theories, and of course, spoilers, among an array of other things that you may not agree with, but are fortunately not facts you must accept. If anything said grows to be too much, I give you full permission to close this podcast and act as though it never existed. Whether you agree or disagree, any frustration you experience should not be taken out on me or my collaborators. We are human just the same as you are. We gather to discuss something we love dearly, but not without new lenses of criticism we've developed since we were younger. With that, I welcome you to listen in on The Ember Island Critics. So, welcome back to the fourth episode of The Ember Island Critics podcast. I am your host, Yanni, she, her, or they, them, and I will pass it on to Ali. Hey, everyone. It's Ali, uh, he, they pronouns, and I'm passing it off to Lillian. Hey, guys. Uh, This is my first episode. My name is Lily. Uh, she, her, her pronouns. Um, yeah, I'll pass to Carolina. Carolina. Hey, everyone. <laughs> Carolina, she, her, hers pronouns. North or south? Yeah, uh, yeah uh, both. <laughs> Go ahead, Zach. Passing it to Zach. Hey, y'all. Uh, it's Zach. He, him. That's it. That's all we got here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's time to party. So this episode is going to be a bit of a divergence from our first three where we were talking about the cast, where we are going to take a little a dip our toe into, if you will, the world of Avatar itself and all of the magic and beauty that comes with it. Because, again, like for a children's show, there was no reason they had to go this hard with the world building. Correct. <laughs> So uh, my very first question is, what excites you most about the world of Avatar and mine? Uh, why? Words are hard. Because, like, it's different now from when I was little. Uh, but Zach, you had a thing. I saw you, like, breathe. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, like, two that I can think of that are the most exciting. One of them being, like, the real-world inspirations behind the, behind the bending. Mm. And that it's, like... Like it, it's inspired by not only is it inspired by real world types of bending, but each bending style has sort of a different philosophy to it and a different way of fighting. Yeah, which is just super dope. Um, and that it's a specific plot point that that studying the other um, elements can um, improve your own fighting, even if it's not from your own element. Um, and then the other one is the way that spirits work and the spiritual elements, which is like a major thing, but to generalize, yeah. When I was little, it was just like the sheer excitement of the way bending worked and looked on yeah. screen because I, like any other, like for one thing, they don't really lean into violence or fighting in children's show most of the time because that like it would be a bad influence but when it's like magic fighting then it's cool as hell um and it's also like that the c- fact that they created this intersection between like magic and traditional like fighting that looked so cool and dynamic because like a lot of other times you you think of like a magic fight it's like two wizards waving a stick at each other versus like an actual martial arts match like that was just so exciting to watch when I was little and I really wanted to kick people which is like again 
probably why they don't tend to put fighting in children's shows but like i didn't so you know it's not that bad <laughs> um and now the thing that excites me most is how much they invested in all of the characters which isn't so much world building it's more of a character point um let me see again like the depth of cultures from the real world that they drew from and wove into each nation that constructs this world agreed zach I agree with that, uh, Yanni. My, actually, I have two things. So, I watched the show when I was a little younger as well, like when it first came out. Um, I was really excited about the character like relationships. Like back then, Lily was still the girl, hopeless romantic <laughs> that she is now. But back then, I enjoyed their friendship. Like they would like that adventure element um, yeah. along with them, like traveling together. That just made me really excited for like every episode to just like where are they going next? Yeah. And, like each person gonna like like this place or dislike this place or get along with the people that are there. Um, so that was really exciting to see. And then also just like Aang like interacting with everyone, and then you really do see his like growth with um, you know their little little squad throughout the whole thing. So that was like probably my favorite thing when I was younger. Now, it's more so um. I like their individual growth as like characters, like throughout the whole thing. Um, I think I paid attention to that most of like seeing how each problem or success like really affected their relationship and also just like how they saw themselves with yeah. their bend abilities. So that was really cool to like try to understand as an older version of myself now being like, hmm, who am I? Like, who, who are I they? Be? What is going on? And like yeah. to your point of like, the excitement of every new locale they got to that was a beautiful investment into like making every place seem human that like aunt Wu wasn't just like a miscellaneous astrology person or you know jet was the kind of charismatic leader that he was that was able to exert this kind of power over people like they put so much into every little piece that they came across into the show honestly like everyone had um good and bad sides of them which i feel like is like the essence of a human being. It's like, we're not all like all good or all bad. I think that was like my favorite, trying to like understand Zuko. Mm -hmm. Cause like, I'm like, he's the villain, he's bad. But then like, as I got older being like, oh you no, know, he's been through a lot. And he's just like in a place of trying to understand who he is. That was really cool. Trying to find his honor. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the honor. I was a huge fan of the bending, particularly when I was little, like, I used to reenact the bending in, like, my um, living room and, like, try and water bend. You know how much uh, water I wasted trying to move it out of the faucet? <laughs> Me in the shower? <laughs> oh, yeah, when you, like, lift your arm up and so the water's running off of it. Or you just splash the shit out of somebody in the pool. <laughs> Honestly. True. And be like water bending. Speaking of which, when I was a kid, I got everyone at my pool to go in like the kiddie pool and to run circles, and we made a tidal wave—not a tidal wave, but a whirlpool. I love that for y'all. It was so cool. You could like lay down, and it would drag you. That's so cool. We're water benders. Hey, master Zach, thank you. <laughs> I thought you were trying to be a firebender. I am. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> Sorry, I cut you off, Ali. Oh, yeah, when I was a kid, it was, like, mostly the bending. And I think now it's the world building that really excites me about the show. Because I'm, like, 
yes, I really appreciate how everything is kind of derived from real world cultures, but also the cultures specifically in the show, like each different locale or each different nation has its like, it's like a different environment altogether. And I was just so, I still am like taken aback by that and like how you could really just like go to this place and live there and it would be totally different than like how we live now. But yeah. Yeah, and it's so interwoven into the story. Like a lot of con, a lot of individual conflicts for episodes often tie into cultural differences and like not understanding how something works in a different place. And I think they really did a good job with that. Each each town is like so unique. Even though a lot of the towns they visit are Earth Kingdom towns, they're all so different from each other, and they have different practices, different ways they dress. Like it's. It's so interesting how much work they put into it. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, like the diversity across the Earth Kingdom is one of the most exciting things to see as they're traveling because that's where they spend the most of their time. And it's really valuable that they invest so much in making them all seem so distinct. And that is part of the reason why the Forbidden film sucks so much because they really tried to just shove them all into one place and act like that was fine. Um, But moving right along, like the people that Zuko and Iroh meet uh, in the Cave of Two Lovers versus Toph's town versus Jet's forest versus Haru's town versus Aunt Wu. Like it's, it feels like actual geography and like the way that people just branch off and don't all do the same thing despite being on the same continent. (laughs) I think I really enjoyed that element of like feeling like I was traveling with them. Yeah. travel in my real life oh, I remember keep going I just remember to think I'm saying like it's just like feeling like I'm getting a slice of life from like all of these different locations and then I that's why I hated the movie too because they just like rushed everything and like it it really takes away from their character development because like each time like all the time that they spent in each place really like develops them or affects them in some way and I really enjoyed that aspect of like them even just spending like a couple days in a location and then that being like oh wow I could have helped these people or like these people helped me or I learned something new about myself and you don't get any of that from the live action it's just like these people are bad hit them all right let's go and then it's like but not even hit them just like like kind of wave your arms and hope something happens five people throw a single rock at them Six people, and then a seventh one to throw the rock. Earth-bending boy band. <laughs> BTS is shaking. Um, it, God. I have- so the thing that I got excited about a second ago, um, as I was re-watching when I was older, I got to tune into like how beautiful the backgrounds they make for everything are, because like all of the forests just like feel like they're pulled straight out of a Ghibli film, which is the yeah. best feeling you can ever create. They're um, so pretty. Like all of the reds of Jet's forest, there's the forest that they're at, at the top of Imprisoned um, before they run into Haru or like being in the swamp, like the swamp. greenery in particular stands out to me and all of the way, who drew all the backgrounds? <laughs> oh. Was it a team of people? Was it a person? They're all so beautiful. Really, and whoever they were. There's so many thoughts running through my head because there's so much in the show. Because, like, world building is my favorite. Like, that's my thing. That's what I obsess over. That's why what I, like, go to movies and stuff to, to 
dissect. Um, and this show just has so much from like considering how like considering how each nation what their specific element does to their culture, their politics, how they relate to other um, other cultures and how their geography works. Like it's very intuitive that the water nation would be in the North and South Pole because they can like move the ice and like create their own structures and stuff. And that one city in, is it Omashu? The one with um, the mail system, vendors, yeah, with the mail system, that's so awesome. and the consistency of the Fire Nation being the one that's the most industrialized because they have fire, so they can like bend metal, and naturally, them being the most industrialized and the mo- most progressive, they have this perception that they need to share this progress with the world, leading to them being this colonialist power. It's so consistent. It's so cool and so well thought out. And also, I'm always biased towards the water tribes, but seeing the contrast between the southern and northern water tribes, even before mm-hmm. all of the waterbenders were taken away, is really curious to me. And part of why I get so frustrated by the like root of the Civil Wars conflict that comes up in The Legend of Korra, because it seems like they're trying, like they're referring to the water tribes as one body, like that is what they should be trying to function as. And that doesn't make any sense to me because they are completely separate units. They are bound together by the same element, but they are separate cultures and I don't understand why Korra is so willing to jump onto that train of the water tribes need to be united. There's no necessity for them to exist in some sense of a monolith of water people. Yeah, not to mention the the swamp people who are waterbenders. Yeah. <laughs> Which were very different. Pointedly right. so. We don't even see them in Legend of Korra. We go to the swamp, but we never see the swamp. Yeah, like Toph, I, Toph would totally be vibing with the swamp benders. Like, I don't understand. Um, and also, how the swamp benders have a completely different movement style than the rest of waterbending we see, because their arms are always like stiff. <laughs> yeah, their bending was so angular and like very kind of sporadic, probably from like having to go around the different foliage and trying to gather the water up in all the crevices of the forest. Yeah, because they're working with like a lot of shallow water as opposed to the ocean that the other two water tribes would be dealing with. That's true. There was one, sorry. No, sorry, I feel like that that is a very different culture, like the swamp bending. And I was wondering, I'm curious to know if there's a, if there's any other kind of subculture of waterbender or even like subculture of other nation um, elements to see if like, I don't know, maybe different corners of the world, people are practicing different yeah. variations. Of- I know there's, yeah, there's like sand bending, which is a uh, sub form of earth bending. Right. Um, we learn of blood bending as a subversion of water bending also for earth bending metal bending and then lava bending apparently falls into earth bending and then lightning Lightning. i guess would be for fire but i don't know what for air is a sub flight technically um and being like spirit being able to go to the spirit world yeah maybe that was like kind i don't know if it was implied that only the avatar could do it but like janora in Korra could do it. I don't know if like other airbenders had to figure it out. You don't need to be an airbender to go into the spirit world because Iroh has a strong Yeah, Iroh did it a brick ago. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's also I kind of... I did it from season one. <laughs> Were there other airbending offshoots? Um, I think we don't see... I think because, like... Because airbending is such a non-violent form that they don't really... It's not explored in the ways that it can be used in terms of, like, an aggressive fight-oriented thing because that's just not how airbenders be. Right. Um, and then also, like, all the airbenders are gone, so... Yeah. If there was anything else, we kind of lost That's a little bump in the road. Wrench in the plan, if you will. <laughs> it's just Aang carrying all the experiments. Wind bending. Um, fog bending, which is technically still be a form of like water bending, right? Yeah, that's just a cloud. Um, <laughs> it did happen, which which he and Katara worked together to do in the show. Yeah. <laughs> they bent but, the clouds in the 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 what what fortune teller so call what's the fortune teller yeah <laughs> the where they make the painted lady yep they do the, and they do the there fog. are also a number of instances oh, fog, where yeah. katara like uses steam and fog by herself so i feel like clouds and cloud-like things are more waterbending adjacent than airbending adjacent because an airbender could move something that's already there but a waterbender can condense the water to become whatever they need i still really love the blood bending episode like every time I I've had... my favorite episode and like my whole life i've always mentioned blood bending and like i enjoy the concept um and that episode was interesting just like seeing katara really struggle with the concept of having to blood bend to save her friends because yeah. it kind of against her morals of like healing and like just like water in general it's just like letting it be and like you know but i really love that like duality that they created for water that like even though it is something that is associated with peace and healing and going with the flow and change and ease that it can be used in the exact opposite way of limiting of causing harm of yeah like manipulation and yeah. and that it was a product of malice yeah, it was a product of confining and controlling people that brought that about. And it was, like, messed up and cool how they just, like, showed that they started with rats. And, like, the the connection of, like, how humans kind of just, like, use animals and, like, rats to, like, kind of test and, like, practice things that could harm, like, human beings. And then we just translate that to that scene where like she's controlling the rats and she's like all right i'm just gonna keep practicing on them until i have enough energy wasn't it like from the moon or something and then she yeah. could, like, control yeah. the original stipulation was that you would only be able to blood bend during a full moon and then they go back on that <laughs> <laughs> in the first episode i said my favorite episode was the southern raiders I retract that. My favorite is absolutely the Puppet Master, and I've always loved that episode. It's, it's so, so great, it's and so I dope. like, and I like. I'm always a sucker for some drama, so I can't get over the like level of tragedy that's woven into everything that led to that yeah. formation. Um, but and I, it's, like, it's so satisfying that exactly what you said that like 
waterbending is the sign of peace. But then there's this one waterbender, because like all the waterbenders were like wiped out from the Southern Water Tribe, and you figure there's just like no connection to it. And they're th going through the Fire Nation, and then they happen to find this waterbender, which is like such a massive revelation. And then all of this creepy stuff happens, and then it turns out that she's like this this blood psychopath who's like out for blood, wanting to do as much harm to the Fire Nation as possible while like disguised as a Fire Nation person. And this is like all of the results of war. And I just think that's like the coolest thing ever. Yeah, and it's like recently people have realized the way that that ties back into Kaya's death because they were at first taking all of the waterbenders prisoner. I know not what for, but that is what they were doing in the Fire Nation. Then Hama escapes. Who's to say what happened to the rest of those waterbenders? And it's unlikely that, you know, when Yanra eventually goes back down to the Southern Water Tribe looking for the last waterbender, Hama, they're not taking prisoners. Like that, Ooh. those dots being connected really blew my mind this last year. I didn't realize that. Ooh. <laughs> like T. Was, was the last waterbender Hama or was it Katara? So I believe the logic that would have been in the Fire Nation military's head would be we need to find this waterbender that's got this weird-ass power. So they're looking for Hama, and the logic would have been go back to now the Southern Water Tribe. they're looking for Katara. Because no, Hama was already captured. Yes, but she escaped. So there's one waterbender left in the Southern Water Tribe. I guess they'd assume that she, she went back. I Although Jan Ross says, like, my source tells me... Oh, sorry, Ellie, what? Sorry, I think it makes sense both ways. I always assumed it was Katara who was rumored to be the last one. Like, maybe they were talking around the village, like, we got one. She over here bending. And it's like, maybe that word got out. But also, I wouldn't see why they wouldn't come back just to see if anybody was born waterbender because you can't prevent someone from being um, born into an element after the fact. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's like, my... all the waterbenders, but you can't prevent another waterbender from being born. Sure, but at that point, why wouldn't there be a, like a constant Fire Nation presence in the Southern Water Tribe to apprehend any new vendors being born? Like that's not what we got. We got the Fire Nation eventually left after they perceived retrieving all of the vendors. And perhaps, you know, this kind of gets into the funky hereditary nature of bending. But like, is it more apparent that like you cannot have a firebender without at least one firebending parent is the logic that they possess and thus if they remove all of the waterbenders there would be no more waterbenders in the water tribe or a question like did it did they need to have like a parent or like grandparent passed down or is it like random i think i think there is some genetic hereditary tied to it it's not i don't think it has to be a parent like it might be a recessive gene or something yeah because like like there's like plenty of towns in the earthbending kingdom where like nobody is an earthbender and that's just like how it is and yeah but um as far as like but i do think there is some like you can't have any like people who have traces back to the water benders and the hope of getting rid of all of them means they can't reproduce they can't bring forth more and the whole point is because when the airbending 
avatar dies because they don't know what's happened to the airbending avatar it's going to be reborn in the southern water tribe which is why which i think is one of the reasons they tried to exterminate all the benders from the southern water tribe. yeah that's definitely like what sozin's mission was in you know redirecting his attention there um but i was also kind of pitching the question of like perhaps the inheritance of bending functions differently nation by nation because we see like in part just because there's so much larger a population in the earth kingdom that there are a lot fewer earthbenders we encounter outside of like a royal context um but like there seems to be a good number of waterbenders in the northern tribe um the southern population was greatly reduced by the absence of waterbenders and fire be firing (laughs) um but i i I do wonder if, like, that hereditary component varies nation to nation. Um, I was, I I was going to say something else about Hama. Like, because when we see the earthbending um, different towns and stuff, I wonder if uh, so at some point maybe colonialism affected how many earthbenders were around just because some might have been taken up prisoners or just decided not to practice because of the danger that it presented to them and their community. Yeah, like it's a skill form that. that kind of dies it the just as like a personal parallel that i learned about recently about how a lot of black people don't swim because swimming pools were often tainted with awful chemicals that white people put into them um yeah i heard about that mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah because like pools were like heavily segregated and that established the precedent for a lot of black people not not going to pools and not learning how to swim which is something that now has created the stereotype today yeah i saw the same thing with camping so i saw an article with camping for that about how a lot of black people don't feel safe going to campsites because yeah white trees. people be wildin'. um yeah trees that's all we got to say oh i was gonna say like despite all of the like tr- like because of all of that tragedy that weaves so close to like a main character's Katara's heart as a consequence of Hama, I still kind of feel a way about the fact that Hama was handed back over to the Fire Nation as prisoner in the end. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm like, she gets taken away at the end. So uh, that that last scene really gets me because like Katara's like devastated that she like bloodbended. And Hama, the the contrast of Hama being taken back to the Fire Nation and laughing because she's happy that Katara has learned bloodbending. Like, it, it just haunts me. And I think that's why- I guess why it speaks that- to like the value that bloodbending holds for Hama, that like this thing that she created is going to live on regardless of what happens to her. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's why she was like fine with being taken back. Cause she was like, haha, I've passed it on successfully. Yeah. That's all she probably like, wanted was just like her legacy to live on in a way i assume that katara is probably not gonna like teach it to anybody unless she finds a better way of like in the legend of Korra, it's established that she is the uh party responsible for making it an, an illegal practice um which part of me is kind of wondering like why was that a broadly known rule because if when you want to keep that on the down low like make it illegal on the down low so then people don't try to learn how to blood bend <laughs> That's one thing I was confused about is how did bloodbending become like a practice that a lot of people were doing when I thought that Hama literally invented it and like no one else had ever tried it or had heard about it. 
I think it was so it's not necessarily something that a lot of people figured out it was something Hama did like she was the first one as far as we're aware and then she taught to Katara and Katara under some circumstances felt the need to make sure that it was illegal to do somewhere probably as a consequence of Katara like I'm just imagining she's saying so bloodbending is a thing don't do it though and everyone's like wait bloodbending we can what <laughs> and they hold on how do I do that it, like uh, that's what I'm thinking happened where she like, accidentally let it slip that bloodbending is real and the people just started doing it also you can't do this we can't what what again let me write what can't we do <laughs> <laughs> I hear it could you yeah natural human curiosity is you're told like, not to do something but why but how but wait yeah also, like, <laughs> so I can understand like thing that she's gonna outlaw something and she's one of the only people on the earth who can do it, who can actually do it. <laughs> like definitively. And so like, I can understand that someone else heard about it and figured out how to do it for themselves. But I take issue with that someone being Yakone who not only figured out how to do it, but figured out how to do it without a full moon and then figured out how to do it to a lot of people at any given time. And then figured out how to do it with his mind. Like I, <sighs> fuck that. What's the best power create? <laughs> If I've ever seen it. Like, and it frustrates me so much because, like, again, what was so exciting about this magic system is that it was movement-based, that you would see everybody's body move with intention and what would happen as a consequence of that. So any type of psychic bending feels disingenuous. Yeah, yeah. it gets into, like, force choking people territory or, like, just using the force. I think, I'm going to admit... I thought it was a. I thought it was cool for a villain that he could that he was like this batshit like overpowered and ridiculous. Only problem was we got this introduced in like maybe like the third episode. I think this would have been a dope like reveal if this were like a seasons long villain that they were building up, and then it's revealed that he can like bloodbend yeah. people with his mind. But it was just it was way too quick, and it lost all of its. Well, that and it wasn't an immediately relevant thing like. Yes, they were dealing with Yakone's children, Amon and Tarlock. Um, but it was like Yakone was not the problem they were dealing with in the Legend of Korra. That was a problem Aang dealt with in the past. So it was like the stakes were kind of on the floor for that. And what else? It was the like the fact that Yakone wasn't really trying to do anything in particular with this power of bloodbending. Like, sure, he was some notorious gang leader uh, in Republic City, but it like we don't know what that means like what kind of power is in that for him or what is he taking away from other people with this power that he has like there i don't know why he's doing this i don't understand like bloodbending is cool to me sure but why is that something that he needed to do yeah i don't remember much of the villain of yukon but if that's I just Wasn't finished doing season that, one that of Korra. Super lame. Yeah, it do, it was kind of super lame. Like they <laughs> toss storms into a restaurant that he's Jay chilling in. Like you're arrested, Yakone, and he's like, "Oops." <laughs> Which again, Toph is a cop. Why? <laughs> Opposite spectrum of blood bending. Can we talk about metal bending and how lit that like evolution? Like the fact that why does these all of these new bending like subforms come out of like people, desperation like absolute need people being suppressed and like subdued and they're like all right so i'm either gonna die or i have to develop a completely new system of bending right now but that episode of her just like 
being like, all right, let me just take all the rocks that are in this metal and then just move them. <laughs> Pretty that, much. Which like, then, why did no one else think of that? Like the system of like metal bending in Legend of Korra is so great. Cause I'm just like, man, Toph did that. Like she started this whole thing. They got like metal benders now. <sighs> like something we talked about in previous episodes was how it kind of doesn't make sense that Toph, someone who was very much opposed to authority became a body of authority, but it would still be really interesting if someone that she taught or one of her kids did decide to make this police force and have metal bending continue to evolve as a consequence of that. Um, Against and Toph's will. And I think, I don't know if I mentioned this in a different episode or on a, like some point when we weren't recording on another call, but I, while I don't like the fact that there is at some point like industrialization gets metal refinery to a point where there is metal that cannot be bent because there is no more earth in it. Yeah. Like I understand why, but like it, again, it feels like it kind of reduces the like value of that revelation when we got it in the original series. That Like it was so cool to be able to bend this entirely new format of a metal, but there are also metals that don't abide by that format. <laughs> Not to defend it, but since this is a world building episode, I will talk about like how that reflects real life. Yeah. Like something that feels like a great advancement now in a hundred years or so, people are gonna be like something else is gonna come that makes this new thing irrelevant and not like I said it. before, the fact that lightning bending was an exclusively royal art form and is now what they use to power the city. It is it is a blue collar job. It's like a degree of separation from being a coal miner, low key. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people didn't like that. And I was like, I feel like that's very accurate to how yeah. real life works. Like a good example of the very something very similar to that is how all, specifically royalty would wear the color purple because it was a very rare color. But yeah. now you can get like ink of whatever color and you can dye fabrics whatever color. So Moki here is literally wearing a purple shirt. So it's not a it's not a special thing. Special, not regal. Like that goes with black fabric and also white fabric because people worried about get white, getting white fabric dirty, and black fabric was really expensive. So during the Spanish Golden Age, black all the royals wore black fabric, not for funerals, but because like that that showed their wealth. Yeah, and like yeah, like the progression of lightning bending makes perfect sense to me, but it also gets into one of my like broader world building gripes of The Legend of Korra season one, because I feel like the bender non-bender conflict is straight up backwards. Like, I don't, like everything that was established in the original series does not set up non-benders to be the oppressed party, but benders to be the oppressed party, because there is a history of the fact that the air nomads, uh, the only society comprised entirely of benders, completely wiped out. Southern waterbenders were the ones trying to be taken away. Earthbenders were the ones being imprisoned during the Hundred Year War. And firebenders essentially meant that you were going to be sent off to war and probably die before you were 25. Um, True. However, it is 100 years later and politics could have changed a lot. But I still feel like, like it's I don't not understand to have how that would have happened. What they were trying to get at was the privilege that this, this kind of relaxed world has given them. So they, they're not like reliant on bending or anyone who bends to protect them anymore necessarily. So they're in a place where it's like, these people have this 
social advantage over me because being a vendor probably gives you uh, a higher status or just like you know more power and power specifically yeah in a way that uh, it would matter in a first world and i use that term very loosely because i hate the whole first term uh, first world third world yeah it's stupid very stupid but in what people would think of as like third world problems is where you would you might need like where you would and need benders um I'm, i will say where I, you do not have that industrialized power continue i completely buy that like the benders could be because they're like have these powers that they would be more powerful and that pe- that non-benders would feel inferior and that they could leverage that power over them however they didn't do that in the yeah. show like they didn't have a reason to have this revolution because they weren't being oppressed they weren't oppressing them exactly and the fact that like ultimately the leader of this movement is a bender anyway um kind of just like the silent majority (laughs) and it's the fact that like the entire world of republic city is structured in a way where benders are not really in the empowered positions like they're there's the council but it doesn't seem like anyone other than tarlock and tenzin are benders first of all because they don't establish any kind of character for the rest of the council but also like the fact that the gangs are comprised entirely of benders that mako and bolin who are two bender children were living on the streets for most of their life that uh again lightning bender lightning bending is a blue collar job that like the police force has to be comprised of primarily benders like all of that yeah and at even least then, in my the- understanding of power structures and government does not set yeah. up benders to even those even those benders being mafia that doesn't necessarily come from a place of power or privilege it's probably means they're in desperation and like formed they're in a, a mafia place where there's a power vacuum and so, yeah. some you know pseudo governing body needed to come and take over like that's that's how gangs came to be as a consequence of redlining here in the state yeah they were probably impoverished and that's why they did this <laughs> Yeah, I think I th- I think also one of my problems is that like I feel like there's not enough time between um Avatar and The Legend of Korra for like a lot of the developments that happen. Like it's just 2 to 3 generations, but the population has exploded in the Southern Water in the Southern Water Tribe. They were like 13 people and now they have so much. Like I I understand like building things, but just the population size Like there's a lot of people there. <laughs> And I'm like, where did these people come from? And it's kind of like some of them are Northern Water Tribe. But again, I hate the fact that the Northern Water Tribe is, I'm just going to say it, constantly trying to colonize the Southern Water Tribe. I hate that. (laughs) Um, And then and then along those lines, like, I don't think oppression would flip in less than a hundred year period of going from the benders are oppressed to the non-benders are oppressed. I think a hundred years is not enough time because the power has to shift completely to the other side and a lot of benders had been killed during the hundred year war the mm-hmm. only people that had the majority of power were the fire benders so i understand against the fire nation they could have power but i feel like a lot of the other- and like there was that nobility issue of like some kind of implication that you would not be of like royal status without the power to fire bend yeah so I- yeah okay there's one thing that we said earlier that I kind of wanted to go back on. Uh, Lily talking about the idea of creating um, metal bending like out of desperation and blood bending out of desperation. I think that's a, re- a true testament 
that we the fact that we believed that they could develop these new forms of vending is a testament to how solid the the magic system is and how mm -hmm. the magic system works. Um, I don't know if any of y'all have heard the the terms like hard magic versus soft yeah. magic. But essentially hard magic is like where it's a very clear and concise system of rules of how the magic works versus soft magic, which is like more ambiguous. Things can just kind of happen, but it has more creativity to it usually. And the vending system here has a very uh, hard magic system to it. And it's super solid in that you can intuit that for yourself, that if you can bend earth, that if someone really needed to, that they could find the earth in metal and be able to bend it. And I love the consistency of you as an audience member can think of that just as the character would be able to think of that. Yeah, and it literally directly parallels like bending plants the way that we see the swamp benders do. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that they start that conversation with water because I guess it's easier to have that conversation with water. You pull water out of stuff. There's water everywhere. There's water everywhere. Like water is just the same logic. You can apply that to any of the other elements, which I think is like brilliant. Yeah. And the, the runaway episode where Katara is in prison and she decides to use her own sweat. Yeah. And then the fact that that is right before the puppet master. Oh, my God. Good. I was... There's this one pocket in season three that I really love. Yeah, that was really epic. I just. I love the creativity and the um there's this sense of like um I don't know like the in I don't I know I don't know what it's called it's not intuition but resourcefulness there we go I love yeah. the like resourcefulness that they like showcase in Avatar cuz like me being a little kid just like watching and just trying to make sense of like oh no how are they going to get out of this situation and then like getting to hear them like they like, figure it out most of the time that it's not fixed for them out the same thing with uncle iroh when he's like trapped or oh my that's probably when I'm, like uncle i was like like my favorite character but literally when he's in prison and he just starts working out like they always find a way and i love that they like tie that into whatever character like each character finds their way of getting out of a situation in the way that they would using their own like strengths and like intuition. So I just love that this show really showcased like each character's like way of getting out of a situation. That there were so many different ways for them to think about how to get out of a situation. Yeah. And they would always like you just using yourself and your abilities to progress. And then I'm gonna get into why the finale frustrates me when Zach gets back because that's where they kind of dropped the ball. Oh my god, we talked about speaking of using your abilities, Sokka every time with this boomerang. Big brain man, no bending. No bending. Oh. He said oh I'll do it anyways. They really just like I don't I don't know if they got lazy. I mean, you know, I don't want to talk I think it was just that. because of like the window of time that they had to work with. But I really a fourth book like i don't know like i think we talked about this before yanni uh but like i it felt rushed for that last season like so much happens and like the amount of time that they gave to develop everything else up until then it just felt like we were a, we were a little cheated we we're a little cheated in that a little bit and like like specifically the introduction of energy bending is what frustrates me so much because that's where we stop getting like 
the characters figuring out how to get out of difficult situations for themselves and it's handed to him kind of like things just start popping up like conveniently and i didn't enjoy that like shift of like them working through a problem and seeing how it like it's changing them and like they're growing from it and then now it's just like oh we can do that okay like and killing ozai was an insurmountable wall but then all of a sudden it wasn't and it's the thing is, there was a way for energy bending to be introduced as something that Aang, like, surmised for himself as a result of watching everyone else learn how to solve their problems the way that they do, and everything that he learned with Guru Patik. Like, there is like, some... He could have heard about it from a past avatar. Like, oh, there once was an avatar who could energy bend, and then he's like, how do I do it? And then the the turtle becomes mentioned and we see the turtle, like there could have been little pieces put together. Or even like when he's meditating on the turtle, if he were to spiritually connect with said turtle and be like, you know, but like even like lion turtles aside, I wanted Aang to just like sit there and meditate on how am I going to solve this problem the way that I feel it's best for me to solve this problem? Is there a way for me to defeat Ozai without killing him well what would it defeating him entail would that mean disempowering him how do I take away his power what makes Ozai powerful oh his bending can I take away bending really breaking it down and connecting the dots like the way they were doing for like the whole season like or like the the whole series any other instance people would kind of try to break down the pieces and see what they could do with what they had and Aang had everything but he didn't do any of the thinking yeah, they just kind of handed it to us. And I'm like, it wasn't as satisfying to get to that point. Which would like, be fine if it were just like a kid's show. But as we've been saying, this is not any kid's show. This is like a beautifully crafted work of art. And that ending was really disheartening. Yeah, it was, it's not fair to like, like you said, it's a kid's show, but they really, they really went in. Like they went in with the concepts and everything. So to just kind of drop off, like at the Especially end, at the very end. It's very painful. I was just like, that's that's it? That's all? Okay. And also like on the last episode, you're gonna expand the world even more. And we're not gonna be able to understand the real depth of it until someone lazily writes it for Cora with regards to like the lion turtles and how what that means to the world like I, when i watched the end of avatar the first of uh, uh, the first series i'm like so are there more lion turtles is this the last one uh you really don't know and eventually end. we get to beginnings where it's like okay so at one point humans were living on the lion turtles whereas the rest of the earth was the spirit wilds where and also at some point the spirits were just like freely convening between earth and the spirit world which is kind of just yeeted over because i didn't have time for it but there's multiple lion turtles of any given element not just like five where there's like air water earth fire and energy it's like there are a few air turtles a few fire turtles a few so that's how that was and then at some point the lion turtles just kind of pieced out and even then where did they go yeah where did they go? They picked the new and planet. Because I want to rant about it, and I still have other things to say before we get to it. I mean, we can get. We're gonna go through and back in all kinds of ways because the world building is so much to explore. Andy hop around. But to get back to the finale, that was one place where I felt like the world building suddenly became a lot softer, and it yeah. was 
dissatisfying because it was in like the final hour of the show yeah like, you know you get to a place where you're like watching and like things are they're feeling rushed but you keep checking like how much time is left in the episode and you're like oh so this is it this is all we're getting okay oh dear we're here now i, I thought we had okay um <laughs> a whole other book left or something honestly Anything. I'm saying like the way they left it there were so many questions that if they just tacked on another season no one was gonna complain if anything we would have been like clapping I mean Viacom apparently would have been because the reason we didn't get a fourth well no because there's contention about like so Brike laid out the series to be just the three seasons like that was their plan from jump but then, like, as they were working on the process, some of the other people in the room were like, hey, there's probably room for a fourth one, and this has been successful enough that we could probably get it, maybe. Or that's what I've gathered from what I've read. And then, you know, Bright just didn't want to, so they didn't. Um, I respect. Gotta respect They the... could have... Maybe, maybe then they could have developed certain relationships better. One or two. Not naming names. <laughs> So, um, or for the for the live action. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, another thing that really pisses me off about the live action is that the Fire Nation is villainized for being industrialized exclusively. Like they have the big evil machines, as opposed to the fact that they are killing people and being they, imperial. They assholes. dumbed down the firebender. They took away the firebenders. Oh my god! Yes. Fire. And like, that was such a big thing because that's one of the reasons they could be so oppressive over others because others had to use what was around them if they had to create it. And that's one of the ways they're able to like conquer everyone. You can remove water, you can remove rocks, but you can't yeah. get rid of something that is generated within you or is exactly. so pervasive in the world as air, which is why they but had now, to just take out all the airbenders. But now I'm just supposed to believe that they can just, that, that, they're able to conquer people be, by bringing around fire with them everywhere they go, just like right? starting a fire. That's so dumb. That's so hold dumb. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I have... got this flint and steel. Wait a second. <laughs> why are they ever planning to conquer the, the water tribes? It's That's why Zuko and Katara's fight at the fucking spirit oasis was so terrible because he has to walk in there with a torch. Honey, with just torch. douse him. Just douse him <laughs> as soon as he walks in. Like, and why is you... it? Why? Yeah. And nobody's attacking their fire sources either. Like, all the all the earthbenders had to do was put dirt on those pots of fire and That's they're it. standing on dirt they're standing on earth and they didn't do anything not a damn thing i hate it i hate and, it all know, they just didn't take the time to actually think about the world that they were yeah shaman was just like i'm gonna make this whatever the fuck i want yeah and apparently it was, like, it was to no. level the playing field it's to level the playing field because everybody else needs their elements around them but like that's the, the whole point, point was that the playing field was not level that's the <laughs> that's the whole point um hello sir <laughs> um brief intermission to mention the background designers that carolina dropped in the uh, chat a bit ago there might be more because i was like going through the imdp page but mention the one who has like 61 episodes credited uh okay so there was elsa gara garza elsa gara garza who was on all 61 episodes then there's yeah. also uh sung hyun oh and mike inman 
Um, There's more too. I stopped looking. There are plenty of people who are like not credited because lots of people had to go into making those backgrounds because they're intricate as fuck, but they're so beautiful. Thank y'all. Honestly, um, one of my favorite episodes is Tales of Boston Say. I know. Art. Just (gasps) the scenery. It's so beautiful. And it ripped my heart out twice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, me with my short attention span, I was really just like, ooh, these are nice little pockets. Yeah. And then just Uncle Iroh. Oh, my. (sighs) And it's uh, like the flashback to Little Luten. (laughs) The song. The fact that it also honored the fact that Mako had died um, post- like by the time that the season was actually airing and it was honoring him. Like really just the narrative structure of that whole little mini story where it's Iroh helping all of these different young men like progressing in age and he couldn't even do that for his own son, but eventually makes up for it with Zuko. But like, that is such a beautifully heartbreaking story. Yeah, it, it's almost as if they, they, I like that they just dropped his story like somewhere in there for like Tales of Bossing today because it felt like the story was kind of like backwards where like you're trying to wonder like man why is he so dedicated to this like brat or like you know because like Zuko was such an asshole to him like for most of it most of their journey together and then when they just give you this background like a little more of like his son and then you really get to understand why Uncle Iroh is so dedicated to helping Zuko. Mm-hmm. And like now and then like thinking back to like when he had left him, um, Zuko's like, I gotta go my own way. It hurts even more because it's just like he understood that he had to like let go, but there's that element. But like Loki never even let go because he was just following him the whole time. Because uh, he's so, he's so, he's such a dad. Like uh, he's so protecting him. <laughs> Iroh and Zuko's relationship we'll get more into on the uh, Zuko episode, but like again, one of the most beautiful parts of the story. What uh, of, what are you summoning, Zach? <laughs> kind of related to that is, and related to something Yanni you said at the very beginning about how. It's a kid show, so they're not killing people when they're fighting them. One thing, while that's kind of true, I do think one thing that I love about this show is how they handle um, the concept of death yeah. and the fact that death has meaning in Katara's mother being dead and how that impacts her and this being a consequence of war, of Iroh's son being dead and that being a consequence of war and how it affects him. I love how it's so consistent that they the show understands that death has value mm-hmm. and therefore they're not going around killing random soldiers. And while you might think they're bad people, even in real life, people who go to war, it takes a toll on you to kill other people mm-hmm. unless you're like a psychopath and do not feel empathy. Like there is weight to human life and i love how true to life that is in the show even though it's a quote-unquote kid show to me that's reads very true to life that they're not going around killing soldiers if they can if they can just suppress them like put them in ice so they can't do anything and like I, <laughs> there's been a recent voice of the fandom that's been like well Aang killed a bunch of people at the northern uh 
the Northern Water Tribe when he uh, became Koizilla. And I was like, mm. <laughs> first of all, stop trying to get on Aang about his choice not to kill Ozai because Koizilla was a different experience. Um, Zilla. <laughs> like, but that's what it was. Like, that's how you do a sudden giant monster in a fantasy show. Cough, cough, Korra season two. Haven't gotten to that part yet. I don't want to. <laughs> but yeah, like, in real life, people who come back from war, they have PTSD, because, like, the, the toll of literally having to kill people, it fucks you up. And I like that the show is very true to life, and that it understands that killing people is a big deal. Whereas in, like, other shows where there's fantasy and sci-fi and shooting shit, you're just killing people left and right. You just see and... bodies drop all the time. Yeah. There's no, there's no sense of humanity to it, and this show has such a strong sense of humanity and what war really does to people. Yeah. Yeah, I really enjoyed, like, aside from, like, them kind of ripping us off for this, that finale, um, I really enjoy the fact that Aang, like, makes sense that he's, he shouldn't kill Lord Ozai. Like... And that really sits with me because, like, even when I was younger, I'm, I'm like, why doesn't he kill him though? Like all of this, and he start, he started all these problems, and he's killed so many people. But then Aang's like, no, like, what does that fix? Like That's all this just more blood on the, you know, legacy of this war. And like all of that coming from like what, like a 12, 13 year old boy, like, just like on the outside context, like, as a young person watching that, I'm just like, yeah violence is not good like at the base like yeah like you're like that while to an extent it was handed to him it was a good answer yeah right <laughs> they did like hand it to him because like killing someone is easier in terms of like you know a quick solution but it's not easier in the long run of like living with someone's life on your hands what does that send to the rest of the nations you know like oh the avatar kills this person and that's the thing that i would have been most excited to explore like after the series is like seeing how the fire nation handles this like power vacuum but also the fact that their like great leader is still alive in some capacity how does that make other nations view the avatar like you know, because I'm certain that there are plenty of adults throughout the Earth Kingdom that are like all of these years of suffering, the people that I have lost, the ways that my life has fallen apart, and that man is still alive. Like, yeah, that would be a point of conflict. That would have been. I, I shared the comics with you guys. Um, you can read them if you want. I will be there to emotionally support you through that process. <laughs> well, literally, like that would have been an excellent place to like continue on, like what do the nations think of Aang's decision to keep him alive? Because there are definitely, there are definitely mixed reviews about that. Like I can see the waterbender, waterbenders being like, okay, that good job Aang. But yeah, definitely the earthbenders being like, what? <laughs> like, you know how many colonies there are? Excuse you? <laughs> and then the fire nation kind of just being like, well, I guess we're shut out of luck. Uh, <laughs> I could see there being like uh, groups of Fire Nation people who, kn knowing that he's still alive, would be like, "All right, we got to restore this man to power, restore the exactly Fire Nation. like that's where a civil context. war would have made sense in the context of the Avatar universe of the people who support new rulers and the people who are very staunch in the like yeah. old Sozin legacy. 
Wasn't that instead in of the trying comics? to make the water tribes a monolith? Sorry. Wasn't that in the comics that they had there was like a cult and Azula was part of it of trying to restore Ozai to power? Yeah. And like okay. that's in a smoke and shadow. But again, it's like it's a cult. It's not a movement. It's like an isolated group of people who are treated as extremists versus like uh, an actual fraction of the ways of thought that exist in the Fire Nation at this point. Yeah, I really also, wish they did. Sorry, keep, sorry. keep going. Okay, like the one of my favorite things about the world building of the Fire Nation is that dichotomy of like, or that pointedness of how they are after power. They do not really care about the well-being of their own people beyond the nobility. Like there's a very distinct class divide in terms of like the military and the rich versus, you know, the normal Fire Nation citizens in terms of like um, the village on the river that Katara helps, uh, the Fire Nation school kids. Um, like those glimpses of the humanity of the Fire Nation we get to see are not the people who are benefiting from this war. Can I just say the, um, the episode where Aang goes to like a Fire Nation school is also really, really interesting because that parallel of like how the real world kind of like each schooling system around the world is different and like that affects- It is constructed with intention. Yeah, you know, and like it affects how people grow up in a society and like how they view their society. So just watching Aang go to the school and interact with these kids. Like that moment where he's like, the the Air Nomads had no formal military, so it's defeated them by ambush. And they're all baffled to hear that, that, you know, one of the great leaders of their legacy did something by ambush and not a proper battle. Right. But yeah, they also, also just don't believe him because what would a kid know? You weren't there. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and the teacher immediately shoots him down. like, And he's like, oh, fuck, I blew my cover. <laughs> right? And also just the culture surrounding bringing up children under this, like, dictatorship of, like, to support the regime and support what they're doing. Like, very similar to, like, North Korea, where Kim Jong-un is treated as, like, this god, essentially. Mm-hmm. And there's this very collectivist mindset of having great respect for him. And yet, at the same time, they're just kids, and they just they don't know any better. And they're that, not thinking that, that deep into it. It's just what they're being taught. Yeah. And, and that's I love... why I'm kind of like, why does it turn into a Footloose episode at the end? <laughs> <laughs> I love... Um, there's the one episode where they go to the Fire Nation air temple... And they find Ozai's baby picture. And they're like, oh, what a cute baby. Oh, no. And, Ember, and Ember, Zuko's Ember like, Island. That's... Oh, yeah. Ember uh, Island. Yes. And Zuko's like, that's baby Ozai. And they're like, how could such an innocent looking child grow up to be a, a psychopathic killer? And he's like, that's just how it happens. If you... I was there. So, like. <laughs> I like that moral, moral ambiguity to it. That it's like, these innocent, these pure people they are brought up with these mindsets and then can be brought up to do horrible things and they explore that like at the earliest when they're talking about tom tom because he had accidentally wandered out with um all the other omashu citizens um and katara is caring for and cooing over him like she would any other baby because he really is just a baby but the earth kingdom dudes are like so prepared to write him off as like you know fire nation that's what he is the murderer yeah yeah like this toddler like seeing those mindsets come through is what i find most valuable about this world i know i really would have taken that baby 
I really would have. It would have been my baby. After <laughs> you're not going. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't have. Katara's already taking care of two kids. Like <laughs> all of them. No, she only had two at that point. It was still just Sokka and Aang. Oh, you're right. You're right. Oh man, uh, Toph and Katara's relationship, water and earth. I know. Uh, I loved all of their conflict and we mentioned this uh in the Toph episode a bit well it'll come up two episodes for now but then school's gonna start so I don't know when we'll actually get to film the Katara episode but anyway Katara Katara what was I oh, thinking about I just wanted to talk about the tectonic plates and what you guys think they are if they're pleasant present in the world so like because avatars can just kind of make new plates what that's true. That, that's what Kiyoshi does. She <laughs> rips a piece of the continent off and makes it an island. Causes uh, oh, severe yeah. earthquakes and tsunamis and kills like everyone on the seaboard. Along right, the like seaboard just the, the whole nation. southern coast of the Earth Kingdom was wiped out. <laughs> so in the in the beginnings with these um, turtles in the in the spirit wilds, is this the same geographically? Like, is this the same Earth that we're looking at? Because it looked very interconnected. So it was ten thousand years ago, which in like actual geology isn't a very long time. Um, but but perhaps the there's a different way. Part of the land were these lion turtles who just did. And the poles, so... like the north and south poles, were oh. you know something that already existed. Oh my and then I, I asked in the chat. I was like, "Is the Avatar world a globe or is it flat?" I think because I think it's a globe. Map, yeah, I think because like our flat. maps are flat. Our maps are flat. Yeah. Yeah, but um. Because, like, wouldn't the geography be very distorted? Are there flat earthers in the Earth, in the Avatar? Like, but, like, definitely. what would being a flat earther definitely. serve in the Avatar universe? Like, no, just sure, like, the Earth might be flat. We can throw fire out of our hands. What the fuck? Just because <laughs> I, I've never seen, because we have the flat map, but I've never seen someone reinterpret it as a globe. And so I'm just like, so the very westernmost part of the Fire Nation, would that be right next to the easternmost part of the Earth Nation? Yeah. Wouldn't, there be, wouldn't there be people traveling between those places? And no one ever says anything. And I'm like... Part of me just kind of uh, writes it off in terms of our own global geography, where the Pacific yeah, Ocean is big as fuck. So, you know, sure. there's just a giant ocean in between the two. Yeah. Um, they're the Hawaiians. <laughs> maybe maybe that's where more the flat Earth culture. theory comes in. The the people on the Fire Nation are too scared to take a boat and go further west to right. then end up on the east side. They're too scared. They don't know how imagine the ocean like is. A, they don't want to fall off the earth. They're scared. Imagine <laughs> like a massive Pacific Ocean where there's just tribes of like waterbenders. I know. I would I I crave more than anything to see like waterbenders in a tropical place. Yeah. Like, yes. Not explore any like Caribbean or like Polynesian. I love pirates. Oh man, that would have been waterbending pirates. pirates. There was a comic with Katara called The Pirate Silver, but I don't think anyone but her was a waterbender. But like, we also have the pirates, pirates in the show. There's well, yeah, but the they show. weren't waterbending pirates. Yeah. 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 Like they don't have sails because they don't fucking need them. Yeah. Move the water. It was so cool. Um, I assumed that the world was round in the show because of the amount of flying that they did. That, and 
sun was like whenever they would be flying i'm like okay so i'm just gonna connect that to because if it was like a flat planet that was kind of like you know this yeah. flat surface with like other or and whatever beneath it then the sun would always be like on a horizon exactly it's one giant lion turtle yeah because I, I also said <laughs> saga has that one line i think i have midnight sun madness which would imply that the south pole has similar daylight to our poles which would mean that the pole that the globe that the earth like has spring to be and summer we're like pretty much all yeah sun there have to be seasons fall, we're pretty much all you know Axel. dark yes honestly but then again, I mentioned this in the chat too. There's a slight discrepancy in the fact that it's summer in the South Pole, like summer or spring in the South Pole when they meet Aang. And then it's like winter when they get to Kyoshi and like still chilly and there's snow covered ground throughout the Earth Kingdom up until they get to the North Pole. But then yeah, at the top of book two, no. Nah, how do you know it was summer? Snow, well, I say it's summer in the beginning because Sokka says, I think I have midnight sun madness. So if True. it's midnight sun, it's like no, spring or summer. I think that summer. could just be a joke. Well, no. Maybe. Like, because we don't have any other information, <laughs> we don't really know what to take it for. Because Sokka is smart, but also a clown. So it's like, well, why? Yeah. <laughs> and we don't see sunset like proper in the southern water tribe for all the time that they spend there in the first couple episodes the whole show takes place over like a year right yeah, like roughly. canonically mm -hmm. yeah. but they're trapped Wait, yeah we don't see night in the southern water tribe in the first two episodes and it takes place in winter oh my god yeah because if it's winter like it would have been a pain and probably year, way less interesting to animate the whole thing in the dark what if it was like the very no, 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 end because... of fall and no, it but was I think, it's... I think it's winter in the northern hemisphere but summer in the southern hemisphere that's why it's daytime exactly but like throughout the rest of the earth kingdom there's still snow on the ground Wait, so there... it was started have... with it and then Kiyoshi... Kiyoshi could have had snow because it was very far south so yeah. it's something like Chile or something, like oh, yeah, the southern it's like point right of Chile. There. Look, look how close these things are. Look at my map. Yeah. You can see how close <laughs> things are. We got some Earth King, Earth Nation places real close to. The what pole. were you saying about cold. Chile, Zach? The very southernmost point of Chile is super cold, and and I'm pretty sure it has snow. Okay. Yeah. It does. The other thing is like like Norway or Iceland, in relation to the North Pole. I don't think there was snow in Omashu. There was on the ground, like, as they were walking up. But that's also in a mountain, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. It's like... I can yeah. deal with that. Because Jet's forest is also pretty, like, Earth. warm. Unless the trees are just red. I mean, honestly, I didn't really I see... I think the trees just were red. Like, that's just how they grow. Because, I mean, I didn't really see other seasons, to be honest. It was mostly... Like, summer. it's New England. <laughs> it's just always kind of temperate. Jet's Forest is just Massachusetts. <laughs> it was harder to, like, pinpoint the seasonal changes because they're traveling. There was this very big point of, like, cherry blossoms at the top of book two. So I know that's spring in the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, so I think I think that that's what we're sticking with. <laughs> Again, probably no one else cares. And then the Fire Nation is a tropical 
Arc I can never say that word. Arc archipelago. I can't say. It. Wait, I can't say it either. <laughs> archipelago. A bunch archipelago. of islands. <laughs> archipelago. Thank you, Zach. Um, they're tropical, so they don't like deal with yeah, season changes. They're right changes. at the equator. Yeah. They're right at the equator. It's pretty hot, and, and it's also volcanic. Nation. Yeah, that, I was like, how does the equator work? Because the I learned that deserts happen just out outside of the equator and the areas outside of the equator because those are dry zones and then all of the humidity and mo moistness goes to the equator and if you look on the map if uh, you were to draw the... a line to the center the desert is like just below that mm -hmm. equator. oh my god is the swamp there too i mean i think the it. swamp probably goes through that line and the fire oh. nation is like right in the middle uh-huh I was like, why would it make sense to find um why wouldn't it make sense to find waterbenders near the equator line then too if there's a lot more humidity? Humidity. Yeah. I I personally had canon that there's something like the Pacific between the Earth Kingdom and the Fire Nation. Yeah. And also the Fire Nation was very tropical. Like they had beaches in that one episode. So it makes sense that that's like the equator nation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Equator nation. <laughs> gang gang. <laughs> Okay, but now I've been looking at the map and I'm just imagining like where lion turtles might have might like be like in the little holes and like where they might like and then when they leave it, there's all this just like suddenly more ocean. Well, there this. is this also this other thing of like the fire and earth turtles were really going to be the only ones that were like land bound versus like all of the excuse me air turtles flew um, <laughs> and I assume the water turtles would be in the water. Like an island somewhere, yeah. And energy turtles just vibe. I don't know. <laughs> just vibe. Skinny bottom is They're a interdimensional. Um, go underwater. Be uh, you know the island at the beginning of SpongeBob. Every episode, there's like an island there. It's a lion. yes. Oh my god, it's a lion turtle. <laughs> um, but yeah. Uh, another question that I had was, which nation is your favorite and why? And um, kind of tying into that, or if this water tribe, easier. water tribe, gang, gang. <laughs> um, if I, also additionally, if this makes it an easier question, what was your favorite like location in the Avatar world? If you can't pick a nation, <laughs> I think for me as a nation, I think the Fire Nation, just because I think fire is so pretty. I love lanterns. I like just the aesthetic where there's like lanterns everywhere. Yeah, I fucks with warm colors. Yeah. And the, just the tropical feel. I really like that. I like that earth. <laughs> yeah, red and gold is a really retiring. beautiful color palette, but earth, yeah. Ali. Retiring in an earth, earth, um, like an earth kingdom farm, maybe the outer ring of Bossing ba saying, just kind of yeah. living my li <laughs> country life. <laughs> I was going to say, I really like the, like, very earthy aesthetic of Bossing say and like everything's like massive it has this very continental feel to it which is very reminiscent of like china mongolia russia those really big land mass nations mm. i mean i really like the air temples i enjoyed the like maybe it's just the art um but they're so beautiful yeah, like the in like the intricate detailing on the temples was like really speaking to me in a certain. There was so much, like, as the people of the Air Nomads were investing into all of the ways that, like, 
the air temples looked and everything was there for a reason yeah it was all intentional and they like they were minimalist so like what they had they were using mm-hmm. so there's nothing that felt excessive or like overwhelming about the environment um i mean it was a lot more vacant obviously because nobody was alive fortunately i thought it was really pretty like whenever whenever they would end up in like air temple locations another thing that that oh that was the western air temple that I really love the upside down temple and I was like and they even explain why it's upside down and I'm like they, they there's a purpose there's a reason but why I, what I'm always super curious about is the uh gender lines that are drawn within the air nomad society because the northern and southern temples were where like men and boys would be raised um mm-hmm. and the eastern and western temples were where uh girls and women would be and I was always like, like <laughs> I mean I guess it makes sense that like a woman would just decide I'm gonna put this one under a mountain instead of on top of one is <laughs> it's smart like i don't know like you have enemies it's a very like uh well you can just fall into this gorge bye <laughs> okay. yeah like you're trying to look for it but can you imagine like being an air temple child and some man just falls off the side of the mountain above you give me one Dang. But I like your airbender to to find a place to kind of hide or place to that's away from conflict rather than a place that um meets conflict head on and says like you know like you could put spikes on your door for intruders or you could just like put yourself under a cliff and then have no intruders. Just <laughs> hide in a bunker, just go underground. Bye. What were you gonna say, Zach? I was gonna say I really liked your question about what specific place would you want to, is your favorite? Or I like to interpret it, where would you want to live? Mm. Um, Purely for aesthetics, because if we want to include the Fire Nation, I don't think you'd want to be living in like a dictatorship. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to think of what place I would want to live. Like, I think my favorite location is honestly Ember Island. Like, I just, I love beaches. That's it. Um, but nation, it's the water tribe. I just really love it. <laughs> like I hate the cold, which is the irony of it all. But I just, I really love water bending. I love like looking at the ways all of these different societies, like the two different societies, and even the swamp benders function. Um, it's like the different types of people that come out of it, and like. I do kind of really appreciate that there are like these spirit forests in both the Northern and Southern water tribes, but I don't, because there's also like spirit greenery that exists within the Fire Nation and the Earth Kingdom. So I like that like each each uh, geographic locale has this like highly spiritual set of like forest or, you know, something like that. My train of thought just evaporated. Um <laughs> Yeah, I kind of just like more that it like further it further proves the dedication to the like history of this world with the uh, with the you know the way that spirits are kind of entwined into the world. Even though we have this idea that there's like a dichotomy between 
vendors and non-vendors, everyone's somehow still tied to the earth in that way. And so there is an underlying spirituality with everyone in the show, regardless of their like bending abilities. Or consciousness of like what, how that spirituality affects them. Cause you get people like Zhao who are like trying to take out the spirits, which is like, hello, stop. I think I'd want to live in the cave of two lovers. And I would just go around and go, secret tunnel. <laughs> People come to the entrance or exit and they're like, who the fuck is screaming in there? <laughs> I would just be a cave goblin. I love that for you. No. Um, I actually, I like the cold a lot. But I think I would want to live on Ember Island. Just, I love the aesthetic. We can go and bitch about plays. <laughs> <laughs> a, a theater kid. <laughs> this is a side note, but I think that's something that I wish was explored more. As far when as Zuko as a theater the kid. No, 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 not specifically, but like the art side of the cultures of all yeah. the different nations. Because I, I started analyzing the theater culture based on that one episode. I was like, well, it's something that the royalty frequently attended every time they went there. They went to all these shows. It's a and lot of propaganda. Have, yeah, yeah, and oh. they have a lot of. They have a huge budget. They, they do so much. And the actors are praised. I was like pl- applying all the theater history stuff we talked about to the show. Like, yeah. Actors are praised for their work. People recognize the actors. <laughs> it's a good like facility that they're performing in. Like, yeah. they got, like yeah, Zuko whole- has opinions on it. He's like, he's like, oh, they ruin this specific show every time, which means there's other theater troops who might be doing it better, at least in Zuko's opinion. Zuko's a thespian. <laughs> yeah, Zuko the thespian. Uh, so I just, I want to see more, like, like what's the, what's, <laughs> what's, theater what's the like music in the other like? Yeah, what's theater like in the other nations? What's the music scene in the Earth Kingdom? What's we, got like? we got the, the haiku <laughs> session in Sokka's Tales of Blessing say thing. They were like, oh, okay. 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 A man that can use words? Right? Slam poetry. More more of the art culture and how art is used in the culture. Yeah. Yeah. That's my interest. You guys know what instrument Uncle Iroh is playing? A Suki horn? Sugi, Suki, something like that. Sungi horn. Sungi. And at which point? Because like in the, because I'm I don't think it's him. I think uh, he's on the ship with Zuko, and like they're they crowd at night, and they'll like just like sit in a. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They have music night on yeah. the ship. It's a vibe. <laughs> it was a vibe. Which is like a really cute note that like Iroh has found ways to kind of keep joy alive on this very unpleasant situation that they're all in. With, you know, a 13-year-old boy that was banished to wander the world for himself. He's teaching the other soldiers by show. He's teaching One them of how those to play. Parts, it actually blew my mind because that horn we hear throughout the show, it's like a... like a. It's a musical motif for the Blue Spirit specifically. <laughs> and then so seeing uh, Iroh actually playing it, I was like, wow. <laughs> it was just cool seeing the world and the music design. Like, kind of- Iroh, Iroh is actually an om- omnipotent being. <laughs> I, I believe it. Omnipotent God. 
Um, Lion turtle incarnate. <laughs> would not be Speaking of omnipotent beings, the other major world building that I want thing that I wanted to talk about was the spirits. Hell and yeah! So I, I like I said how the bending style had a very like hard magic system to it. And then on the opposite end, you have the spirits that have a very soft magic nature to it, which I love that you have these two dichotomies. And I felt it was very true to life. Like for me, when I'm trying to think of how world building works, I think of how does it relate to the real world and how we understand things in our real world. And to me, Avatar is like the best in this sense with magic systems and world building that gets it right and that makes it so satisfying to watch is that you have the physical, very direct bending style that you that's very easy to understand how it works, um, that it is derived from these specific elements. There's very, very clear specific rules set in place of how it works. And like I said, you can under, you can intuit how these things would be developed. And then on the other hand, you have the spiritual aspect, which has a much softer world building element to it which, again, in our real world, a lot of spiritual things tend to be very vague and interpretive and ambiguous, and we don't always have the answers to those types of things. Like, so the bending is kind of like a par parallel to science and innovation, how you can intuit how you would change those things over time. Whereas things like spirituality and religion, they never die off. And they just are very ambiguous and vague things that we always are free to speculate about. Like, what is the meaning of life? What happens also, when we die? Like, Stuff in like that, that duality, um, the things that you don't want to know more about. Like, I did not want to spend any more time with Ko the Face Stealer. I get it. It's in his yes. name. Can I leave now? <laughs> yeah, these ideas of, like, fairy tales and mythical creatures and things that, like like you, that are scary, that some people are very excited by and want to go explore, but other people are like, I get it. They're probably there. I don't have an interest in pursuing that any further because I don't want to fucking die. <laughs> and it has that ambiguity to it that, it, that that that's where the magic comes from. That's where it's like, there's this mystery. You don't quite know how these things work. And that's what keeps the mystery and magic of the world alive. Like the uh, professor from Ba Sing Se, who was like so desperately pursuing the spirit library and all exactly. of the knowledge contained within its depths, which like the spirit library is one of the most exciting things to me because it's technically like an infinite library. Like you can't yeah. see the bottom when you look down. Like that's wild. Yeah. And the fact that he was just willing to just stay there and die with the knowledge. And part of me is like, well, you got only two days there, bro. You can't, there's no water down there. <laughs> <laughs> Dow, I don't know. Because like he says, I could spend an eternity here, but the part of me is like, I mean, sure, but you got two days, so. <laughs> the rest of my life, as in the next four days. You yeah, got I maybe thought, a week, love. I thought he was betting on like the owl to take it back to the spirit world before he drowns in the sand, but that didn't happen i think at some point they see like janora or somebody is like going through the spirit library in the spirit world and you see his body um yeah that happened i remember <laughs> some, someone sees his skeleton he's like fucking died yeah and i'm like um also like why didn't wanchi tong just like kill him while he was down there i don't know he's, hung he's probably hungry 
Yeah, I'm for a little midnight snack. Wait, that's morbid as shit for a kid's show. <laughs> I, uh, I mean, Legend of Korra also had Nickelodeon's first murder-suicide at the end of season one, so they just kind of true. Uh, true. went buck wild. But like I mentioned before, I love how the spirits aren't like they're they can be malevolent they can be good they aren't set in stone as like there's in this dichotomy of like good and evil in terms of the spirit world the the spirits have their own um willpower they have their own intent their own motivations and it's always it's often ambiguous they can betray you it's right. not it's not like a very christian interpretation of like there being good and evil they're very yeah. human in that way which is why it was so upsetting to see the way that they handled rava and vatu because that's not yeah. what yin and yang are yin and yang are balanced they need each other regardless of like what you want and like logically there is at times a necessity for chaos there is a need for disruption from staunch you know militaristic or harmful ways that are sure peaceful but they're not constructive or healthy or good mm -hmm. that's what i loved about the original series and that's what i hate about season two legend of Korra, because it fundamentally changes how the story it fundamentally changes how the world works and it destroys all the magic and mystery for like what the spirit world is and how the world was created all of these things that there are these two godlike beings that have yes. like indefinite influence over every other type of spirit by trying to answer these questions, you ultimately undermine what makes the story exciting and the mystery of the universe, which keeps audiences engaged in the world and speculating about these things. But even yeah. if, like, so they just absolutely had to have Rava and Vatu in there. They could not shake their desire to have these two, like, all-encompassing yin and yang symbolism beings, you know, exist. There was a really interesting way to go about, you know, interrogating what Rava's extended rule actually meant for the world. Because I presume that in like Vatu getting his 10,000 years that there would have been a more disruptive but intentional means of integrating like humans and spirits and removing them from the lion turtles. Like the world would have been very different if R Vatu had actually gotten the time to reign as the balance of a cycle would typically entail. But in Rava's extended reign, what we know of, we got the Fire Nation Imperial rule, an avatar being stuck in the ice for 100 years, another avatar that lived for 230 years and did an, an absurd series of things in her time. We got uh, Kuruk, who was incredibly passive in his time as Avatar. We got Yang Chen, who was incredibly biased towards helping humans and earthly matters in her time as Avatar and upset a lot of spirits in her time. Like, and we ultimately learn, like, as Juan is dying, he's like, my time with you did not create peace. Humans are still warring with one another. Yeah, there's a bunch of nuance there. And if but they didn't explore I, any of it! There's, there's anything that I can't stand. It's this need to interject Christian theology into worlds like this, because Christian theology is based around the idea of an un bridled good versus evil like there's no challenging that there are things that are good and there are things that are bad and from a storytelling standpoint it does not work because we as humans fundamentally do not have a concise understanding of what good and bad is these are things that we are always in conversation about and if you are trying to have a world that proposes an answer to these questions then all of the thing answers you have all the answers there's nowhere to go from that and that's not part of the human experience is not knowing the answers to these questions. 
So you can't create stories when you already have the answers like this. That's why I can't stand interjecting very blatant good versus evil theology into stuff like this, which is why I hate the end of Korra season two and why I like the original series. In Korra, that's a definitely like a huge trend, um, kind of in embedding these very modernist, like kind of American ideals. Yeah. Into very American, the, like the insistence of like Aang and Katara becoming a nuclear family for one thing, the fact that Republic City is just New York, uh, <laughs> literally, like that's like, it. It's just New York. Like people, people are rude the way they are in New York. It's, we got cars, the big city. It stinks. Yeehaw. <laughs> also, if you can tell, like this is what I'm super passionate about, this is why I get so invested in this stuff is because of stuff like this. This, Because this completely changes the universe, in my opinion. This is completely changes how I see the universe and how I- Like the um, magic system, the way the world yes. has progressed, like all of it is just kind of and violently how I disrupted. To it, how I relate to it as a human being. Yeah. Going back to the Raba and what's, what's the opposite Vatu. name? Vatu. My thing about Rava and Vatu is if that they had originally been separated and Juan was, if Vatu was released, that would explain all the shit that happened and what the role of the Avatar signifies to keep that peace because Vatu is loose and corruption is out and evil and is in the air. But if he's trapped and humans are still doing their little nonsense, then all the conflict that was already there from the jump just doesn't seem... And then, and then Vatu being like released again yeah okay i guess there's like now spirits are involved but like the whole balance like i think humans need that balance too and so i think that was the whole in in if you want to make and also the fact that like in rava's efforts to contain vatu there was just as much destruction as a consequence like the spirits were running away they're going to destroy the valley like it's destruction is something that is unavoidable sometimes and it's in other cases necessary for something new to grow like it's just after a volcano yeah. eruption a new ecosystem arises like yeah there was room yeah. for a lot of really beautiful symbolism in letting rava and vatu function the way that they're supposed to but the yeah. avatar's creation avatar was an extreme been, disruption to that it would have been an a, a, they had an opportunity to let the avatar be an extension of that battle like they're not physically tied together but that battle is still going on but they didn't and i don't know why <laughs> and also the fact that vatu was the one that was like getting more powerful upon their separation while rava was becoming weaker like it was his time that's just the way it was meant to be and there's from a story standpoint there's nothing more exciting than going from a story that's very complex and it has these intercultural wars going on to then divulging into these two good versus evil spirits fighting each other with laser beams. Like, <laughs> that's not entertaining. I'm not getting anything from this. It's uh -oh. so frustrating. Also, the fact that they like retconned the, in the original series, they kept saying where the um, bending came from. Like Toph said, they learned earthbending from, from the, the badger moles, the sky bison, the dragons, and uh, the yes. birds. And then in Korra, they just said that the first benders got it from these fucking lion turtles. And I'm More like, More power being handed out. 
not a fan in case you can't tell. So that was a blatant retcon that I was like, did y'all not think about this? Because <laughs> there was a way that you can kind of reconcile it where it's like, okay, the lion turtles provided bending, but people mastered it by learning it from, you know, the different creatures of the world. Sure, why not? Because there's a distinction made between like one, uh, the other humans are kind of fascinated and disturbed by the fact that he can use fire as though it's an extension of himself rather than like a tool. Um, So there's clearly like some suggestion within that, that Juan is more in touch with how fire as like it was bestowed upon him connects to his chi and like energy as an individual rather than like using it as a tool. But even like, because in the original series, we get how Pian Dao, when teaching Sokka, is talking about swordsmanship as though the sword is as much a part of your body as any of your limbs, if you're going to use it effectively. Yeah. Like this, because it's something that the series already taught us to be shown it again is kind of like, well, sure, but like, why? <laughs> also, there was like no like learning how to do it because anytime they needed the bending, they would just be like, okay, lion turtle, hit me up. And then they already know what to do with the power as opposed to. Yeah, there was no like comparative clumsiness with how uh, the other people from the lion turtle one was on was using it like they would just kind of throw it which i guess is the clumsy like it's not something because it was fire in particular it would have been interesting to explore that point of fire being something dangerous like because this is pre-sun warriors i assume unless they're somewhere else in the world um but like is there how are people treating this power that they're given like it it's a very shallow exploration of an origin story, really. Yeah. I, I liked how it looked, and that was it. Yeah, the drawings were cool. I did find, even though, even though all this conflict and everything with like how it fits in the overall world building, I felt I found it more interesting than the rest of the season. Like this I, is true. I, yeah, because again, watching it I more than I'm tired else. of watching the North try to colonize the South. I'm sick of it. Yeah, because like it, away. As, it was like a break. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> I think it's naturally satisfying because we have all of these answers of how does this world work, and to have it told to us it's like yes this is what we wanted but then after that it's kind of like well we know how everything works so this is all stupid (laughs) well that and also like in that episode when Korra like washes up on some miscellaneous fire nation beach and is like i don't remember who i am which like i hate amnesia especially when it's (laughs) completely low stakes amnesia like there's no you know immediate threat to her being where like her not knowing that she you know is a bender at all let alone the avatar is like like i don't why did she forget everything that's irrelevant and it gets solved like this exactly and the fact that they're like there's a dark energy infecting her but they make no effort to show like how that dark energy might be manifesting or threatening her being like she doesn't seem to be in any kind of like i'd be more interested in seeing her in pain as opposed to just kind of like falling over drunk like she's not drunk but she's like the manifestation of her dealing with this dark energy is her just being exhausted and it also would have been like a really interesting sneak peek at like vatu like this these little branches of him that are infecting the spirits that like the one that attacked her like if that was in her body and we're like what the fuck is that oh that the fuck is that like (laughs) there's just none of that like interweaving that was so exciting in the original series of how well thought out things were just in a season 
just the one season. I know not to treat Korra like a series because that is not the thought process that existed behind it as it was being produced. But in individual seasons, the same kind of investment just doesn't exist. Yeah, which is why the original series just constantly astounds me because it's like, it seems so effortless how good the story was. And then you just watch like anything else and you find all of these things that are like, that doesn't make sense or that just doesn't feel good to watch. There's no satisfaction in that. Mm -hmm. And it's like, how did the original series make it seem so easy? And that's why I'm so interested in constantly studying and dissecting it as some as an aspiring writer. Yeah, I have um, a post that I can share with y'all of like someone broke down all of the writing credits by episode um, mm-hmm. that I think is pretty nice. interesting. You um, really think because I, I don't know something about the first season. I definitely know it wasn't like it's not not the first season, the first show. It definitely, it's got, it. I feel like the collaborative energy in the room must have been on some other shit because I don't think you can personally cred any one person or one writer yeah. with like how, like- Like the, all of the pieces of how this show came together. Like you yeah. cannot credit any one character to any one writer. You cannot credit the entire narrative to any group of, like it was- so vitally important that it was this entire group of people who were creating this process from all facets that made it what it was also communicating with their third eye i don't remember when or what i watched or read but there was at some point this might have been in the art book but there was an emphasis with uh the original series to never have this the frame be static there was always going to be somebody or something moving in the screen which makes it feel really alive as we get with like you know in acting classes when scott's like what your what is your activity um and it's you you have to be doing something that like makes you look and feel and like respond to the space being lived in and that was something that was really focused on in the original series whereas Korra is a lot more static where you do get these frames of just two people talking to each other and then they cut to a different frame of just someone talking versus like with Toph and Katara's argument was the thing that was pointed out like Katara and Toph are not just yelling at each other it's like Katara shaking trying to get a word in or you know Toph pointing or it's it's so dynamic and feels a lot more alive and human as a consequence which is a lot harder to do with animation because it's a series of drawings as opposed to living human. yeah I was gonna say it's a different it's an entirely different thing if it's live action because you can communicate a lot with like subtlety in the facial expression but with animation if you're just sitting there with a still frame of someone's face you're not getting a lot of subtlety in it. Mm-hmm. But like, that's that's what I mean by like, oh, man, uh, Avatar, just holistically as a series, like every little detail, like really- Had so much love put into it. Yeah. And then when you get to Legend of Korra, it, it doesn't feel- It feels act- flippant. Yeah. It feels very shallow in that and, way. Where- yeah. You're not getting they were the- changing things as they were going. So I think that really showed. shout out to the stupid ass love square they tried to push in season one. Shout out to Spy Asami. We were robbed of. Yeah. <laughs> she was gonna be a spy. That's so much more interesting than this love triangle. She was gonna be using Mako. And you could have given her a redemption arc, but no, she's just there to to create love 
tension, which is not what I'm here for. It was just annoying. Like, I I don't like watching teenagers argue about petty shit when there are actual problems in the world. I don't. That is, like, there's a terrorist in the city. Why I don't care who's kissing who. (laughs) Yeah, for me, I didn't like how minor the villains felt. Like, they just didn't. They didn't have the same punch as Ozai. They didn't feel like they were as impactful. Except for right at the end when we learn all the backstory on Tarlock and Amon. Like, I was way more excited by that than just about anything yeah. else in season one. Because, <laughs> like, they don't, they didn't feel like they really came from it. Like, they didn't feel like they had all of this baggage of, like, hundreds of years behind it, if that makes sense. Like, they just kind of appeared and they took inspiration from things that exist in the universe, like Zaheer being an airbender and, like, freedom being equated to anarchy and i'm like that they're like ozai was an imperialist force and there was so much baggage surrounding that that was integrated into what the fire nation represented what each character's motivation was in fighting against it it felt very true to life again like like history is made up of a series of events and everything leads up to our current existence but for me Korra just felt like we know that she literally was like a foreigner in a foreign land like she's dropped into republic city which is a completely different playing field than the southern like being sheltered in the southern water tribe of all things and then suddenly there's this problem that she is expected to deal with exclusively because she is the avatar yeah it just felt very small scale i just didn't feel like the villains just felt very small scale and not impactful it didn't feel as alive as the original series did. Also, something that kind of frustrates me about how they execute Korra is there's a, a bigger emphasis on treating Korra like a teenage girl than there is on treating Aang as a preteen boy. Because there's a lot of ways in which they talk down to Korra and say that she is not qualified to be helping with these things in conversation, like the way that narrative pushed, not even just Korra, but also some of the ways that they treat Asami existing with the like precedent that Aang was like, you know, the last drop of wisdom existing in the world in some situations is like, why are you putting him on this pedestal but refusing to acknowledge what Korra can offer? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nobody really ever belittles Aang in any way. No one's ever like, no, you can't do that. You shouldn't do that. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Like The one time well, one time we get is the beginning of the series where it goes like, you're just a child. And he comes back at it with, you're just a teenager. Like, he knows he's a kid. Like, being a child is not anything that he is ashamed of, and rightfully so. But, Mm -hmm. like, there's no point where Aang is treated as less than. Like, it's the the all-powerful avatar. And I want to know what he did in his time to where Korra cannot be respected the same way. Yeah. Yeah, because during her era, like, people are just like, oh, it's the Avatar. What are they going to, what, what is she here to offer? And they kind of just fall back on the New York, uh, the Republic City is New York thing where, like, people just <laughs> don't care. But Get out of here. Right? Like, I don't, why? Why do people feel Get like that? Like, here. that kind of ide- ideology doesn't come out of nowhere. Like, what made people so apathetic to... <laughs> like, if, like, after Aang doesn't kill Lord Ozai, if that just creates this like domino effect of people handle like i'm just i'm just imagining the end of the war being a catalyst for creating new yorkers and that's the funniest (laughs) thing to me which would have been cool if they expanded on it but the show didn't want to be didn't want to put anything on ang they wanted to be like ang was 
perfect it's except all in his... yeah Aang's like Aang had to like logic there was no good choices for Aang to make post-war high key no no some i'm not surprised if like any actions that he took afterwards just led to people or at least a group of people that just slowly expanded of not really respecting the avatar so then by the time it got to uh cora they were like we don't care about this girl yeah you know that's not anything that they really like invested time into about why people do not respect cora but like it's lynn in particular that i'm trying to understand because lynn is toff's daughter and toff despite all the shit she'll give ang does respect him in some capacity so i'm wondering like why Lynn thinks the way that she does. She respects Twinkle Toes. Right. And I'm I'm planning to like finish the Legend of Korra at some point and I may retroactively speak differently in another episode. But like I'm just I wanna know more. I want to understand why these characters are the way they are because I did in the first series and now I don't and I want to know what's going on. Um, yeah, that's a big, huge thing about Korra that bugs me. It's just it feels m- too much like this world and not like the world that we were given in the first series. It doesn't even feel like this world. It feels like an approximation of what how stories work. Like, all of the conversations they have are because people talk to each other, not because these people need to say these words to each other. You know? Like two people are in a room, they must speak. Not that these people need to tell each other something. Exactly. I've talked about this before to other people, but it feels like like all the dialogue is just the outline for like what needs to happen in the scene. Like (laughs) as far as like character development, like like it's like okay, so in this scene, these two need to talk about their feelings, blah blah blah, so that this character can learn this or whatever. And then the lines are literally, "Hey, we need to talk about our feelings," and then at the end, it's like, "Wow, I just learned." that blah 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 and that's how these scenes are and I get so annoyed and the thing like in season two right before we start beginnings there's an interaction between Asami and Mako that is actually valuable for the first time and I was baffled because they just got off like the uh triple threats were paid to keep them on the ship while uh I think Varric is stealing all of Asami's uh mecha techs and like everything that she has left of future industries and like she's mourning that while Mako is like, no, I'm gonna fight for you. And like that, I was like, oh my God, this is like a real valuable interaction happening between characters. Like I got so excited that there was good writing for the first time in the series. Wait, what episode is that? Cause I'm gonna look up the writers. Cause I have um, my own personal thing. I think it was Tim Hedrick. Um, See, it's not, it's not. <laughs> it was, it was not. The two who wrote season one. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, who? Who's Black Reich was Reich, Reich essentially wrote all of season one alone. Yeah. And they also wrote the comics. So as opposed then to who wrote the original character. Who do I credit for the original series? It was a group of, a, of a, so a collective there was like effort. Tim Hedrick, some dude named John, Bryke, Aaron and Elizabeth Welch Ehas. Like there was a room of there was a writer's room proper. And then you mentioned yeah. like that the really good episodes was like completely Someone who wasn't Brike almost exclusively. Yeah, some of my personal favorite episodes are the Ehas couple. Yeah, Brike were like the executive producers and they like oversaw the writing. Like they were making the overarching narrative. But as far as like individual like lines and stuff, like they they let other people do that. And I think that's where they excel. They excel at like 
outline <laughs> and then let you can make a really beautiful world but you don't quite get how people work <laughs> they, yeah. they wrote the original book right and the art book couples the couple that's in that the he has couples i think you said. oh um yes. writers of the book before it was turned adapted into a show no Avatar was like a completely organic product of Bright. Like that was something they were trying to produce or like collaborate together to hand to Nickelodeon and pitch. Wasn't it like we're like a couple that worked on the art or something? I swear it was like I don't know. But and of course I don't know if Elizabeth Welch uh, is still married to Aaron because they're writers and people don't care about their business. Um, all I'm learning is that the best work collaboration. <laughs> yeah, like that's why I like when they're like divorced. as we're getting in theater. Sorry. Oh, they're divorced. <laughs> they're okay. divorced. Check Wikipedia real quick. <laughs> it be what it be. Glad to be posted. Elizabeth Welch, as I will refer to her now, um, wrote some of my favorite episodes. Like she did, I think both the Storm and the Avatar and the Fire Lord, um, which are two of my favorite episodes. <laughs> Avatar and the Fire Lord. Oh, man. Gosh, I love that episode. Is this the episode where Azula just starts, like, tweaking? Uh, <laughs> that is technically the Southern Raiders. When she, uh, Can't you see? I'm about to celebrate becoming an only child. And I was like, damn, okay. <laughs> no, but the that last fight where she's just, like, tweaking and, like... Uh, like yeah, the that's the Sosan's comment. Oh, man. <laughs> that stuck with me. Like, when I first saw that when I was younger, it just... Like, watching Azula lose her mind was yeah. viscerally heartbreaking. Like, I didn't know why I hurt so much for her, but I did not want to see her suffering the way that she was. Yeah, because I'm like, she is definitely... They came... They were the product of the same... Like, same parents. I mean, they were treated differently, but they came from the same place in that regard. So I felt bad for her. But I also appreciate that they didn't have Zuko taking her down, that Katara ended up being the one to do it. But I yeah. also, but that's that also caused by the fact that- Where she pulls up the water and then she freezes it. And then she like, I love that fight. That also, was so all three clever. Of my favorite, all three of my favorite characters are in that fight, I just realized. Yeah. Like, oh my God. And you see how Katara used her mind to solve that problem, to fight that foe who she seemingly couldn't beat before. Where she didn't like resort to blood bending or anything. She was like, no, I'm or gonna. energy bending off the first mention of it in the whole show. <laughs> and she wasn't hyped up on Jesus juice because right? she's an avatar or something. <laughs> she's just intelligent. Dang. She doesn't need to be Jesus to do it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Airship slice. Um, like, and the, th the fact that every other aspect of the finale is so beautiful, but particularly the final Agni Kai, like that just, oh my God. I don't even know where to start with that. Because I'm like, do I talk about it in the Katari episode? Do I talk about it in the Azula episode? Do I talk about it in the Zuko episode? Like the final Agni Kai is just so, wonderful like the score over it the way that their firebending works like looks like exactly how massive the flames are because of the comet um Great. azula losing and the, and her like mind her flying with the the 
shooting fire from her fingers and mm-hmm. her feet. The dopest thing ever. Mm-hmm. It was terrifying because I was just like, oh my god, she's coming for you. Like, it's so scary there. And Zuko is just like facing her head on. Yeah, because oh. the significance of the Agni Kai for Zuko, because that started his journey, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and this is like kind of the closing of that cycle for him. So which I thought it was so beautiful. It was really nice to see. Louis, what were you saying? Were you talking? Uh, I was. I was saying she was like <laughs> when she's losing her mind in that last that last bit because she's literally like tied to the chain and like just shooting electricity out of her mouth. Fire. They were like, oh, it's fire. Well, that was just terrifying. That contrast of like laughing and like crying because she's like wailing and yeah she's like sobbing violently like there are tears streaming down her face like she is just in pure pain and i realized i hope i'm not upsetting christians who are watching this by me just like well i don't think it's a wrong point to be like there's not really room for christian theology in this show no because that's not anything that was apparent at any point in the original series and it's just a consequence of how jarringly westernized the legend of Korra became yeah yeah i think the only the only thing is that i could see how the avatar could be like some kind of jesus symbol in that he's like the manifestation of like the earth spirits and there are a couple of little ways that they do parallel ang to jesus imagery in the first series where like there's that moment of him with a sheep right before the black sun and uh (laughs) The way Katara is holding him at the end of season two finale, uh, Pieta, is what it parallels. And people are like, it's just because Aang is Jesus, but like want to completely remove the fact that in Pieta, it's Mary holding Jesus, you know, his mom. Um, But that's a different conversation. (laughs) Yeah, he's very much a messiah figure, but there's a lot more nuance to it. Yeah. And he doesn't become any less colored by the uh, Buddhist and Hindu drawings that create air nomad culture. Yeah, because like he's not there to save everyone and to bring them to heaven or anything. He's there to maintain balance. And even there's a lot of nuance in what balance is. As you previously said, the different avatars had very different attitudes of how they conduct being an avatar. And there's also like, he's working with the like unfortunate tragedy that there is no restoring proper balance to the world in his lifetime because he is the last airbender there is no balance without the balance of the four nation which like in some fucked up way ozar wiping out the earth kingdom would have restored balance because <laughs> <laughs> then there would be two of them it'd just be water and fire <laughs> duke it out <laughs> <laughs> that's why i said fucked up creating um, balance by just becoming by dominating everyone and just becoming one fire nation regime balance. <laughs> <The> balance. <laughs> there is no scale <laughs> there is no scale only fire the scale only has one plate and that's the balance <laughs> <laughs> they just dropped a bigger plate on top of the scale <laughs> Man, this world is beautiful. We'll probably bring up more notes of world building uh, as we continue to speak about all the characters. But we got a good two hours out of this discussion. This is very um, fun. This is my closing thoughts. 
I forgot to do closing thoughts for Sokka, so we're going to do some closing thoughts. <laughs> I think my biggest critique is probably Carol, uh, Carolina's, like, the the time over, like, how it progresses between... You, and so this is, I guess, it's mainly a Legend of Korra thing, but from the ancient, like, Wan's time to the last airbender it doesn't line up and then also that transition to the chorus time doesn't line up for me but i think with everything with regards to culture the people motivations and like historical figures those are the huge like biggest pops for me in terms of world building because they all like enrich the story so much more yeah i would say that um the magic of the world was always my favorite piece and the magic in both terms of like the spirits and the bending that was what like always that was what captivated me when i was little and it's something that i'm still super excited to watch every time i rewatch the show now yeah and i even though again very little hope for live action renditions of most anything i do think that there's a way to capture this in a realistic way as long as people are invested in the right aspects of the story yeah. And not making it edgy teenagers who are having sex and killing people. I swear to God, triangles. if they make it some horny dark academia piece, I'm punching Netflix in the face. And not draining the life out of the story like the movie did. Or the Winx Club live action that we just got, which is yeah. not only like completely drained of life, but whitewashed. Whitewashed, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They whitewashed. Another them. thing, the the, the yeah, Winx Club, the thing that was intentionally based on various pop princesses of the time, specifically Lucy Liu, Beyonce, J Lo, Britney Pink, and a third person, or a sixth person. <laughs> I think it was Britney Spears. I said Britney. Yeah, it's five. Oh, it's only five. Well, oh, no, it's six. six. It's six. It's five originally, but they added um, Aisha later. But you already said Beyonce, so we do need who. Um, Beyonce, J-Lo, Lucy Liu, Britney Spears, Pink, Pink, and the, the, the techno girl. No, that's Pink. Oh. It's, uh, so, so Bloom, who is Bloom? Is Bloom Britney? That's J-Lo. No. No. Flora is J-Lo. <laughs> Flora is J-Lo. <laughs> is her, that's not, oh, Flora, I thought Bloom was Flora, okay. <laughs> no, Bloom, the, the main girl, I, was Bloom Britney? Because I remember I saw a thing. That was Bloom was like the fire dragony one, right? Yeah. Let me just look it up. Stella, Flora, Musa, I've never Layla, even watched Techno. it. I just watched, I just watched some YouTube videos about the whitewashing. Yeah. I also was watching That's things cool. about like like how people would have costumed them instead. Oh, yeah. I watched those too. Those costumes were disgusting. Oh, you I took a Magical that. Girl TV show and made it the driest, blandest thing you could possible. I'm like, why do you guys keep... Like you literally get a blueprint of how to do it, and then you're like, "No, I'm gonna just like wing it." It's like they took Sailor Moon and then made it all gray. Okay, it was Cameron Diaz for mm. uh for Stella. Okay, that's who we were missing. We were missing Cameron Stella. Diaz. Completely just removed Lucy Liu's character, so that's cool. Yeah, Asian and Hispanic people don't exist. Don't you remember? And also, black people exactly. can only be one person. And they and they removed pink too. They removed techna by like her why? Pink is too powerful. <laughs> um, 
but that was that was a very strange closing tangent um any closing thoughts on the world building of avatar pretty dope pretty dope give me give me some more of the art culture please let me mine beautiful art honestly keep collabing that's just how we're gonna really fill all the blanks don't run away from people who disagree with you yeah, my forever takeaway from the show is just how infinitely awesome the bending is like how every kid wanted to like be some type of bender um the world building is just so fantastic and i always keep going back to how solid the world building building is in this show because pretty much nothing ever compares to it the world building everywhere else always falls flat in some way and avatar has always held up in my mind something that i always revisit personally as pers- uh, as my inspiration yeah also the uh this is probably my last note about this the respect of nature like yes. the world itself and then also the writing of the characters respecting the world itself uh i think that was a really good lesson when i was younger is just feeling connected to the earth and always cherishing and trying to respect nature as its own like as a connected entity to myself that they just sprinkled into the worlds coincidentally my biggest inspirations are avatar and like studio ghibli films which also is very much about connection with nature and the preservation of our world princess mononoke slaps honestly man oh my the art that's a whole whole thing Um, studio art and scenery also just like a side note i i was definitely like i we joked about how toff was playing in dirt when we were trying to theorize what her first uh earth rumble match was but like i was actually playing in dirt trying to be an earthbender when i was little so (laughs) snow and then trying to stop it midair but it never really worked so I'm still, waiting for my, I'm still waiting for my firebending powers to kick in. It'll I believe in you. <laughs> and that is the end of our show. I really appreciate you listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Remember to take what resonates and leave what doesn't. Next time, we'll be returning to our character discussions, and with the first of those on the opposite side of the war, May and Ty Lee. I hope to see you there.